You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. I'm joined today by Adam Mead. Adam Mead is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Mead Capital Management, LLC a value-focused New Hampshire-based registered investment advisor he founded in 2014. He's also the founder of watchlistinvesting.com, a monthly research letter focused on quality companies. Adam spent over a decade in banking and commercial credit and has been investing in public security markets since 2004. He owned two small businesses which were non-financial during college and grew up in a family of small business owners. In addition to managing assets for his clients at Mead Capital, Adam is on the board of three local nonprofit organizations. Adam has been covered by Business Insider and the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for coming on the show today, Adam. Could you just start by just telling us how you actually became interested in investing and just talk us through your investing career to date? Sure. So um, I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll expand that to, to business, um, business and investing, because uh, I, I've come from a family of small business owners. I've always, I've always been around business. My grandfather had a tree service company. Uh, my father had a trucking business and a real estate company. And so business has always been a part of my life. And then investing kind of just came into the picture. Um, gosh, maybe when I was in my mid teens, my grand grandmother actually uh, gifted uh, me and my siblings 25 shares of what became AT&T. So it was a pretty small gift. So, so that kind of brought together the the two, you know, biz, business is investing, investing is business, but that my, my sort of first taste of the stock market. And then when I turned 18, I, you know, the day after I turned 18, I opened a brokerage account and uh, it was kind of off to the races. So, and then it just went from there. And, and, you know, as you know, Sam, anybody who's in, in investing, certainly, but even in the business world, eventually you're going to come across Warren Buffett. So he came into my orbit and uh, it's just uh, been down the rabbit hole ever since. Okay. So how did you um, make that transition then from a private investor to a professional investor like you are now? Really just a, a process of, of continual learning. And, and I guess, you know, what, what makes a professional investor versus a, a non-professional, you know, is, is it the license or what have you, you know, you could argue that it is, but at, you know, the, the line is, is blurred, I guess you could say, but um, I just, you know, I, I continued to go down the path. Uh, I really liked it. And um, uh, eventually I had some, some friends and family ask me to manage their money. And I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it uh, the right way. And so I actually went out, got registered as an investment advisor, which is uh, the, the requirement here in the United States and uh, formed an LLC and, and did it all uh, officially and, and on board and, and all of that. So that, that's how Mead Capital came about, was a uh, re request by friends and family to have them manage their money as, as alongside my own. So how did Watchlist Investing come about then? So, so that's, I, I wish I had started it sooner. This whole growth of online newsletters, uh, a, a friend had said, geez, you know, you should start a newsletter. I said, well, you know, do I have the time for this? And, you know, most newsletters are kind of, uh, you know, an idea a week or an idea a month. And I said, you know, geez, I, I can't come up with, with this large volume of, uh, of ideas. So 
I, I just, I, it's essentially an extension of what I'm doing already. I'm taking the research that I'm doing for clients and just kind of putting it out there to the world. Um, and watch list investing, it, it just, the, the name came about because the, the way I, I, I approach investing is to build a watch list uh, of good companies, regardless of whether they're uh, attractively priced or not, get to know them. And then if and when something happens that creates a, a dislocation between the price and the value, as I've determined it, then I'll buy it. So I said, well, geez, you know, I, I can research, I can put out an idea every single month or multiple ideas every single month and find and uncover these good companies um, and build this watch list sort of publicly, if you will. And, and subscribers have access to a Google sheet that has uh, the, the companies that are covered in each issue. So I, I view it very much as complementary to, to my, my primary investment business. Um, of course, I have a fiduciary responsibility to clients. So if there's any unique idea, uh, clients get that first. Um, and the newsletter is just that, a newsletter. It's not any official advice, anything like that, uh, but it is very complimentary. So obviously you've, you've written the book. Do you want to talk about that and how that came about as well then? Yeah, so... Um, just, I, again, I just um, once I once I hit Buffett, I just went went deep, devoured everything uh, I could find on him. You know, my bookshelf here is just packed uh, with with Buffett and, and Berkshire and Munger, and Chris Bloomstrand, who wrote uh, the forwards of my book. Uh, he found uh, through the Library of Congress there's there's over 200 titles on Buffett, Berkshire, or Munger, and so you know why write another book? Well, I guess the short answer is I wrote the book I never found, Sam, which is Berkshire A to Z, you know, kind of geek out on the financials, let Buffett speak, don't try to outdo him, uh, but really just pull all of that great information that's in the annual reports and the 10Ks forward to the reader. Because I, I would I would find myself, for example, a couple of years ago, Buffett stopped doing this in his letters, but he would say, okay, the, the MSR businesses had a 17.2% you know, return on tangible capital. I said, well, how did he get this number? And so I'd go into the 10K and I'd try to calculate it. And I said, you know, there, there's, that's the book that I wanted. And I wanted it, you know, year by year. I'm a very logical person. And so it just year by year, decade by decade. And um, to uh, my great delight, there has been uh, a number of people like me out there that have really enjoyed it. And, um, and for others, you know, if it serves as a, a reference book, uh, that's okay too. Uh, because it is structured the way it is. And then I have I have a companion website for the book as well, uh, theoraclesclassroom.com uh, or brkbook.com with uh, all kinds of goodies on that site. So for anyone who's not familiar with the book, it's basically it's the history of Berkshire Hathaway and it goes, it's from before Buffett got involved. It's up to the present day, isn't it? Yeah, so my my original idea, Sam, was to start, I, I said, how, how can I go through this? And, and it took me five years to write the book. But so 2015, 16, I was kind of kicking around these ideas. And I said, I want to look at Berkshire again, year by year, but kind of pause at certain points and look at the capital allocation decisions that were made over a decade. And so I said, well, I'm going to start, you know, the, the, the book is, is surround, uh, it begins um, or, or is, is sort of uh, bookended, if you will, or, or the, the origin is 1965 when Buffett took uh, control. So I said, my original idea was to go back to 1955, work every year forward, and then pause it every 10 years uh, to examine the decade. And so I wrote the first two chapters, I sent it to Warren, and uh, to my surprise, he wrote back and he said, you know, glad you're doing this. You know, wouldn't it be interesting if you went back to the World War II era 
and took a look at the companies that the predecessor companies and how they enjoyed this uh, extreme but very temporary blip in profitability uh, because of World War II. And I said, well, of course, if Warren Buffett, Buffett's you know, suggesting this, I'm, I'm going to do it. But that led me to go all the way back. And so uh, the first chapter starts, you know, literally the origins of the textile industry in the United States in 1789 with uh, Samuel Slater, um, and then walks forward and follows uh, and, and the, the industry as well as these many predecessor companies uh, until they uh, eventually uh, sort of congeal into first Berkshire Hathaway or Berkshire Fine Spinning Associates. And then on this parallel track was Hathaway Manufacturing. And then in 1955, they, they merged to become Berkshire Hathaway. And then that history continues uh, year by year from there. So do you want to briefly go through the history then, decade by decade, with just the key stuff that's happened, just to whet everyone's appetite? <laughs> sure. Yeah, and, and um, you know, really, when you look at Berkshire Hathaway today, um, and even if you looked at it, you know, 20 years ago, its early history is you're you're really looking at two different companies, right? I mean, you had this old failing textile company, and then you have the conglomerate that's respected and admired today. You know, we we very well could be talking about you know blue chip stamps today, which is one one company that uh, that Buffett invested in. It's just sort of an accident of history that Warren Buffett chose Berkshire Hathaway as his investment vehicle. But I I hope the early history of Berkshire is instructive to students of business are investing because it really is, there's a simple business there, right? And so you, you have a, a textile manufacturer, it has working capital requirements, it has fixed, uh, fixed asset requirements, it has liabilities, there's depreciation, all of these things you, you can learn really the basics of business from studying uh, this early textile business. And then of course, as the years go, go on, the, uh, the competitive forces, both within the United States, as well as from overseas that ultimately uh, kind of sink the economics of the business. So you, you can see that as, as you go through the 1930s, uh, the 1940s and the 1950s, when, when, when Berkshire Hathaway really was just a textile business. Um, and like I said, I, I organized the chapters in decades and the decades are you know, for the, for example, the next one, the, the first major one in the book is 55 to 64, because again, it's it's uh, centered on that, the year that that uh, Buffett came uh, to Berkshire. So 55 to 64 was really interesting, uh, Sam, is that the the management of Berkshire Hathaway at the time actually shrunk the business in half during this decade, and they returned capital to shareholders in the form of dividends and share repurchases. And that was ultimately what led Warren Buffett to get interested in Berkshire Hathaway because he saw this business just repurchasing its own shares. When it did this, you know, the stock price would go up and it was really one of these classic cigar butts. Um, so, so Berkshire Hathaway last appeared on the, the Fortune 500 in 1959. It was 499th. Um, and then it, it fell, fell down and then uh, eventually came back on. Um, so, so that's really that decade, the 55 to 64 decade. Uh, was sort of this struggling textile uh, manufacturer that was returning capital to shareholders. 1965, Warren Buffett takes control in May. And, and again, he uses Berkshire Hathaway as his base to create this empire. It was sort of accidental. Uh, he, he said in the past that uh, if he were thinking more rationally, he would have just formed another investment 
vehicle to acquire first, you know, the biggest acquisition, the most important acquisition in Berkshire's history probably was national indemnity in 1967 for, um, for 8.6 million. 1969, they acquire the Illinois National Bank and Trust, which actually, interestingly, was the largest acquisition in Berkshire's history as a percentage of its equity capital at the time. It was 44% of Berkshire's equity, uh, even bigger than national indemnity. Uh, this decade, we see blue chip stamps, which Berkshire owned uh, a portion of, but blue chip acquired C's. Eventually, it all rolled up into Berkshire. They really build on to the insurance group at this point. So National Indemnity was the foundation. Then they actually formed a whole bunch of these uh, home state and workers' comp businesses as well. 1973, the Washington Post uh, for a little over $10.5 million. I think they bought about 10% of the company. So uh, that, that decade was really the beginning of this sort of recycling of the textile capital into better businesses. And then we, we move, move forward to the next decade, 75 to 84. Uh, interestingly, even though Buffett knows that the textile business is difficult, he goes out and buys a, a, a mill called Wombach Mills in Manchester, New Hampshire. He buys it uh, below, well below book value. Uh, it was such a distressed price, in fact, that when they booked it on Berkshire's financial statements, there's no property, plant, and equipment put on the books. Kind of, it, it was a mistake. Eventually, the, the mill was closed. That was a small acquisition, but, but notable because uh, it was an additional acquisition in 1975, even when Buffett knew it was difficult. Uh, Buffalo News was in this decade. Uh, Berkshire actually technically merged with uh, diversified retailing which was another business that uh, was owned by uh, Buffett, Munger, and Sandy Gottesman. One, one divestiture, so I mentioned the Illinois National Bank and Trust, which was acquired in 1969. United States banking regulations forced Berkshire to divest of this bank in 19, uh, before 1980. So they did it, they spun it off, and um, it, was, it was an example of, uh, it was a rare divestiture, but Buffett actually set the terms of this. And, and he, he used the term, I cut, you choose. He took the residual. Um, and as it turned out, uh, the split was appropriate enough that if you had choose, chosen either, you would have done uh, equally as well, whether, whether you chose Berkshire or, or the bank uh, to, to put your future in. The blue chip stamps, they merged in 1983. Uh, Nebraska Furniture Mart was part of this decade. And then um, Geico, Geico, General Foods, Exxon. Um, th th these are some of the bigger investments. Geico at that point was not uh, a wholly owned subsidiary, but it was, it was the first time that Ber Berkshire invested in Geico um, when it was a, a security at that point. So then we move on to the 85 to 94 decade. Uh, the big thing here, Berkshire cuts loose and actually shuts down the textile operations. And now it's now it's on its own. So all that all that capital inside Berkshire, with the exception of diversified retailing and, and the blue chip stamps, uh, original capital came from this recycled textile operation, essentially. Um, then we see th this is kind of a fun decade because Berkshire is big enough to do some of these sort of interesting newsworthy things, but it's small enough that it's nimble and has, uh, has a huge runway ahead of it. And so I'm thinking of Capital Cities ABC, where Berkshire invests like 18% uh, of, of this combined company that helps Capital Cities buy ABC. Scott Fetzer, 1986, this is one of my favorite acquisitions. This, this business um, had about 700 million in revenues. It nearly doubles Berkshire's uh, revenue base. 
about the same with its, with, with, um, in terms of its assets. And it's a company that's kind of largely forgotten about today, but it's interesting because it was a, it was a mini conglomerate of about 20 businesses. The largest two were Kirby and World Book. And as a whole, these businesses didn't have a huge growth potential, but they earned, uh, in some cases, over 100% return on the capital employed in the business. And what Berkshire did was, was take that capital and recycle it into things like capital cities, like we just talked about, or Coca-Cola or uh, Salomon Brothers. But Scott Fetzer didn't grow very much. Um, so, so actually, just a little sort of look ahead, Scott Fetzer literally fades to a footnote in Berkshire's financial statements in 2003 because it becomes uh, so small relative to the other businesses in Berkshire. But that doesn't mean it was a, a, a poor business or a mistake. In, in fact, the opposite. It was just such a good business that didn't grow, but Berkshire grew up uh, around it, so to speak. Uh, mentioned Coca-Cola is another big one in this decade. Berkshire buys into the shoe companies, of course, making the big, uh, big mistake in buying Dexter Shoe in 93 by issuing a bunch of shares. And then through through Wesco, which was an, a, another controlled operation, but not 100%, they exited the savings and loan business through mutual savings, which is a, a fascinating little story and uh, uh, classic Charlie Munger for, for anybody who, who knows Charlie, uh, doesn't mince words. And uh, I'd, I'd recommend reading uh, in, in the entirety the... Uh, uh, the public statement that they made when they exited mutual savings. It was just a, just a debacle. Um, and then in the insurance business, um, so, so that, that business is growing, um, again, organically as well as uh, forming new businesses. They, Berkshire enters the supercat business in 1990, which is insuring you know, hurricanes and other earthquakes and fires and big risks and things like that. 95 to 2004, so jumping ahead to the next decade, uh, you have a whole ton of things that happen in this decade. I won't go through all of them, but uh, the big ones, you know, they, they buy the, the remaining half of Geico for 2.3 billion. And the first half costs them 47 million, uh, which is just, just an, an awesome statistic, uh, just to show how, how that value creation grows over time and, and Berkshire's willingness to recognize the value uh, and purchase it. Uh, they issue class B shares during this decade for the first time. Uh, and then they have all these other uh, big acquisitions. Early 2000s, they, they buy companies like uh, Justin Industries, which has a, a subsidiary, Acme Brick, uh, Shaw Carpet, Johns Manville, which makes insulation. These sort of boring businesses, which if you remember at the time, were this was all around the dot-com boom of the early 2000s. So everybody's excited about tech, right? The parallels to today. Everybody's excited about tech. Berkshire buys these boring businesses. McLean, they buy this. It's a distributor, uh, a trucking distributor that they uh, they purchased from Walmart in uh, 2003. Clayton Homes, another sort of basic but boring business. The the big uh, two two big acquisitions uh, in this decade, Sam. One was uh, General Reinsurance, which was uh, this behemoth United States uh, domiciled reinsurance business. They have operations worldwide, but it was domiciled in the United States. General Re was sort of the second leg that it really, really brought Berkshire into the reinsurance space uh, in a big way. This is a very interesting, uh, I'll give Chris Bloomstrand credit for, uh, I think he calls it the, the great pivot. The general reacquisition, if you look at Berkshire's split between stocks and bonds, very heavy in stocks. So this is 1998, stocks are running up. So 
very heavy into stocks compared to bonds. Berkshire has all these positions that they've held for a long time, like American Express, Coca-Cola, and so forth. By buying General Re, and they bought it with shares for $22 billion, Berkshire's stock itself was, uh, at the time, overvalued. So they, they purchased an overvalued business with overvalued stock, which if you sort of do the math, they got it on a one-to-one -one basis for their float, uh, insurance float. Um, but what this essentially does is allows them to reduce the level of, of stocks to bonds in a tax-free manner. It was really just a, a brilliant, brilliant acquisition. Ultimately, uh, January hits a tough spot. 2001 happens with the Trade Center uh, terrorist attack. Uh, they were exposed. There was a couple of years of losses, uh, but generally pulls through. Um, then I just quickly mentioned Berkshire Hathaway Energy, which was purchased in 1999 a majority interest. Um, and and that, that becomes another leg of Berkshire Hathaway, sort of its, its future in terms of more capital intensive business, but excellent long-term prospects with known returns. Continue to the 04 to 14 decade. Again, a whole bunch of businesses. I won't touch on every single one, but uh, Iscar was one of, one of Berkshire's first foreign acquisitions. Uh, it was based in uh, Israel. They make cutting tools. Uh, Marmon, which was a, or an is, a real a, 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 it would be one of the one of the largest fortune 500 companies but it, it, it owned marmon itself had a, about 120 companies when berkshire bought it um, just to show you the size of it um, and then of course this is the decade of the great financial crisis berkshire invests 14 and a half billion in a matter of uh two weeks into uh, general electric wrigley and um uh, goldman sachs in addition to some other things that they did uh, they bought Lubrizol, another energy business, um, a whole host of different things that they did in this decade. Um, and of course, Burlington, Northern Santa Fe, the, the railroad. The, the next five years that I cover in the book, uh, 15 to 19, again, a whole host of other, other acquisitions, uh, the biggest of which was Precision Cast Parts uh, for about $33 billion, which we know today. Uh, in hindsight, Berkshire overpaid. Uh, for that business, uh, but but the business itself was was a very good business. Is a very good business. Couple of couple of small uh, insurance acquisitions, some other non-insurance acquisitions, and, and interestingly, in in this decade, this half decade, I should say. So just I, I ranked, I, I found the largest acquisitions by Berkshire in its history, and, and it's interesting, Sam, to see. As the years went on, Berkshire just bought larger and larger and larger companies. So it maintained that concentration. Uh, but because Berkshire didn't pay a dividend and before uh, uh, the last couple of years, it wasn't repurchasing shares, the amount of capital generated by Berkshire Hathaway just in the last five years here, 15 to 19, was about 43%, a little over 40% of all of the capital ever generated in Berkshire's history. So this just illustrates this compounding effect uh, that retained earnings at a, at a, a healthy rate of return uh, does uh, to a company. So uh, that was quite the mouthful, quite, quite a history. Um, <laughs> a lot more detail and, and nuance uh, in the book, of course. Um, and I'm sure I've forgotten more than a few things here. Well, I'm sure you've forgotten more than the rest of us haven't you so there's a few points that i did want to cover in a i guess a bit more detail just because of like usually typically they're important so i think you covered the gen re one where they you know where they, they added all the bonds 
I was wondering if you could just talk about the original acquisition and how Buffett did come to own it. Because like you say, it wasn't a very efficient thing to do. And it was much more, I think, of an emotional decision than people who haven't studied the company actually realize. Yeah, that, no, it's, it's a great, uh, great question. So Berkshire, so Warren Buffett, and, and I don't talk uh, in the book about Buffett's early days or anything like that. I, I really, I really focus on Berkshire, which of course becomes Warren Buffett. But uh, Warren Buffett had a, an investment partnership called Buffett Partners Limited, which he ran from uh, the, the mid 1950s to 1969. So Berkshire Hathaway, as, as I mentioned, uh, when I was talking about it, uh, the, the early days was this cigar butt was this company that he could buy with this surplus of working capital, uh, even after you subtract the debt compared to the share price. And again, they were, they were buying, they were selling off plants and buying back shares. And he saw this just as a quick, quick buck. He accumulated enough shares that he came on the radar of the company. And so Buffett went to go uh, meet with uh, Seabury Stanton, who was the, the president of the, the company at the time. And, and Stanton made an offer and said, you know, hey, um, we're thinking about doing this tender offer. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to offer, uh, I think, 11 and a, 11 and a half dollars per share. So 1150. Buffett says, fine, you know, I'll sell you my shares at that price. The official offer comes and it's 12 and a half cents less because they, they were quoted in eighths at the time. This sets Buffett off and says, you know what? He reneged on his deal. I'm just going to buy as much shares. I'm going to buy control of this business. So it was, it was kind of the dog catches the, the, the moving car, right? Um, so he takes control um, in May of 1965 and, um, and the rest is history, right? But, but, you know, he was the dog that caught the car and was, okay, now that we're in this business, what do we do about it? And of course you have a stock picker. He's, he's not just interested in, in making Berkshire Hathaway the best textile business he can. He sees capital as a fungible commodity. And of course the, the rest is history there. Um, so yeah, so one of the other ones was, um, you, you sort of touched on it, but the importance of national indemnity, just in terms of not only as the first acquisition, but it, it gave them the first lot of flow and the importance of, of that to the ability to compound. Yeah, so, so a couple of things with national indemnity. Jack Ringwald, who founded national indemnity, he was, he was a, a handicapper. So he said there was nothing, there was no such thing as a bad risk, just an improperly priced risk. So he would literally insure uh, lion tamers and poor drivers and, and just, you know, it, it was not kind of, kind of like the difference between uh, say home insurance or your car insurance and a credit card, right? Uh, credit card companies unsecured, you're going to pay a higher interest rate, but that, that compensates for the risk. Um, so that's what Ringwald, Ringwald did. He said, we'll, we'll insure anybody you're just going to pay for it. And so that really showed Buffett, uh, one, that an insurance company could be run well, uh, but two, this, this sort of mode of thinking of not just a Geico, for example, which is sort of the statistical-based uh, business where you're just finding an average driver, insuring that driver or above average. It's really pricing any risk. Um, but what he came to understand, he didn't fully understand national indemnity when he bought it. He didn't fully understand the value of float. Uh, this was only only after that he really came to realize that uh, national indemnity had uh, almost 20 million uh, of float, and they bought this business for uh, 8.6 million. They got us. They got a steal. 
So uh, Float, just to remind or, or, or tell your listeners, um, Float is money that an insurance company holds that does not belong to them. So it's, it's the auto premium that you have to prepay in advance, comes out of your, your checkbook, but it goes on the, the balance of the, the companies, but they can earn interest from any kind of, you know, if, if it's invested in, um, in bonds or if they invested in stocks, they, they get to use the money and, and make, make money with that. Um, you don't get the credit for it. Same with losses. That's a little bit less intuitive. Um, if, if you get into a car accident and the insurance company has not yet paid you what it owes you um, or fixes your car, that's money that it holds that hasn't been paid out. And so as insurers write business and incur losses and do more business, there's this pool of capital that sits on the books as a liability, but has the, has the ability to earn something for the insurer. And so that's, that's really, uh, today Berkshire has uh, 140 billion of this float, which is money that's technically owed to someone else, but Berkshire can invest uh, for its own benefit. The next one was Seize Candy. It's, it's obviously a small acquisition, but it was, it's probably, I'd say it's probably the most famous one. And it's, it's the one that's known as the one where almost it changed their mindset towards um, well, valuation and investing. So I was wondering if you'd just talk about that one. So Seize Candy uh, was originally purchased by Blue Chip Stamps. Blue Chip became part of Berkshire. So, but it was just all kind of this tangled mess. Um, effectively, Berkshire bought Seize Candy. Um, they paid about three times book value for this business, uh, but it was a business that was earning uh, well into the double digit returns on capital. And so it was really Charlie Munger that convinced Buffett because uh, Buffett had this Benjamin Graham mindset of buying the Berkshire Hathaways, buying the businesses that were just cheap, cheap, cheap. And, and Charlie could see that if you buy a good business, it has pricing power, um, has staying power, you don't have to make another decision. And so C's was sort of the first of the quality companies that Berkshire Hathaway uh, purchased. And uh, as Buffett has said, uh, C's ultimately led them to recognize the value in Coke, Coca-Cola. <clears throat> um, C's did not have the reinvestment opportunities so Seize was kind of like uh, the Scott Fetzer that I mentioned in which it was, it was a great business. They sent all the cash to Omaha, but it didn't grow very well. And, and just like Scott Fetzer, Seize sort of fades to the other category over time, but, it, but it's still there earning a great return. Uh, Coca-Cola, by contrast, had this reinvestment opportunity. And of course, we know uh, Berkshire has, has owned that uh, since 1988 and uh, I, th I think is probably valued on the books, maybe 15 to 18 to 20 times uh, their original purchase price and has spit off uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year in, in dividends to Berkshire. And the last one was just, just whether or not it came through the numbers, the importance of a Jeep. Yeah. Jeep Jane. So uh, he, he uh, Buffett, I, I pretty much, think every single letter <laughs> probably since the, the mid 1980s has mentioned Ajit Jain and his value to Berkshire and Ajit Jain uh, was originally from India. Again, the famous story, he walks into Berkshire's offices in 1985. Uh, this guy, Mike Goldberg at the, at the time was running the insurance uh, unit, finds Ajit Jain. He knows nothing about insurance, learns it very quickly and, and Ajit becomes, uh, he's now the vice chairman for uh, insurance operations. Ajit 
really is the brains behind uh, Berkshire's insurance operations uh, in a very big way. He's an excellent, uh, excellent handicapper. He understands risks and pricing and the uh, combination of risks and, and just everything that that's related to it. A, a G, and you can see it's interesting from 82 to 92, roughly this 10 year period, Berkshire loses money in insurance underwriting every single year. Uh, to the tune of a, a total of about a half billion dollars. Now they make money up on the investment side of the business, but underwriting is is not profitable for ten years. Uh, Nineteen eighty five, you can really start see see it starting to change, and that was a Jeep Jane uh, really transforming Berkshire's insurance business into what it is today. What were your biggest takeaways from writing the book? <sighs> biggest takeaways, you know, I really came to understand. How, how do I put this? How simple, how simple it is, but yet how hard it is. Um, you know, it's simple, but not easy. I mean, that's really, really the, the, the story of, of Berkshire, this continual learning, you, you know, they, they just continued to do the best that they could at every turn. They didn't have a strategic plan. They didn't have any kind you know, the, the shoe business that they entered in the, in the early 1990s, that just happened. I really came to, to understand the value of float, insurance float, and how it can actually function uh, very much like equity capital, that just it just stays there, but the, the equity shareholder gets to keep, essentially keep that money. And then uh, just, you know, another interesting one, uh, I guess would, would fit here is, um, like I said, I, I didn't go into Buffett's personal life, but it was interesting to me to see this entrepreneurial spirit manifest itself in Berkshire Hathaway. So if you read the snowball or you read an account of, of Buffett's early life, he sells, he delivers newspapers. He, uh, you know, has his buddy die for golf balls and they resell them. He has a pinball business. He, you know, famously buys a six pack of Cokes at his grandfather's grocery store for 25 cents and resells them for a nickel. The entrepreneurial spirit that is Buffett manifests itself in Berkshire Hathaway in the form of uh, starting these uh, home state insurance businesses over time. Uh, you hear him talk about stepping on the gas and pushing Geico forward uh, to invest in new customers, even though it makes the financials look worse. Trying a credit card at Geico. So this, here's an interesting story. Buffett goes to Geico's management and says, you know what? I think that uh, Geico policyholders, who on average are good drivers, are going to be good credit risks, we should offer them a credit card. Geico's management says, no, we think you're wrong, Mr. Buffett. He's, you know, and, and I'm just paraphrasing or making this up, but he, he pushes them forward and says, no, we're going to do it. He loses, that credit card program loses Berkshire Hathaway, loses Geico, $50 million. It was a $50 million mistake. He, and, and to his credit, he comes out in the annual report and actually says, you know, this was my idea. They told me not to do it. But but he tries these things. He's constantly pushing Berkshire Hathaway forward to, to try these things and take these calculated risks. And um, it's sort of an interesting dynamic between, uh, you know, this sort of uh, seemingly stodgy, you know, boring value investor that just, you know, likes conservatism, right? And then you have this other flip side of, uh, of trying things and taking risks and, and all of that. It's just kind of an interesting paradigm. 
It's just an add-on to this, but what do you think about his understanding of technology? Because it just, it, that story, it reminds, I guess it reminds me a bit of, you know, if you listen to the meetings from the 90s, when he's talking about like trying to predict the impact of the internet, he's very, very good in some cases. Like you could see how it would impact the insurance business and how it would benefit Geico. And, it, and despite him having that reputation of not understanding technology, I think with the internet, I think he got it quite early on. Yeah, he he really cuts through, and that's what we love about about Buffett. He just cuts through to the economic reality of things, and uh, you know the example that he gives was um, grocery delivery. This was tried. You know, we have we have Uber Eats or whatever it is. You know, today all these iterations. There was a a, a dot com company that was going to deliver groceries in the early two thousands. Buffett says, "Geez, I grew up in my father's grocery store, and we used to deliver." groceries to customers. So all the internet's going to do is is lower the cost maybe of ordering, but you're still going to have this physical component of delivering the groceries. And that's the expensive part. So he could he could see he could discriminate and he could see where the technology would help and where it would hurt. Um, and, and even even the economics question, and he, he puts it this way of, of asking and then what, um, because if you take an industry, you apply technology to it, and all of a sudden, it's five percentage points more profitable because you've reduced your expenses. Well, where is that going to? Is is it going to then be reflected in competition and lower prices because everybody in that industry are going to compete for the customers, and it's just going to lower lower revenues, and essentially that the the benefit of the technology is passed on to the customer, and so that's really. That's what that's I think how he looks at the technology, um, just in a very broad way. Is um, you know it it needs to to stick to the rib to uh, stick to the ribs of owners as uh, as Munger has said. And um, competitive forces are always going to be there, regardless of what the technology uh, ultimately does to the cost structure of the business. And I, I think he's recognized that, but he's also recognized uh, companies like Apple, right? And um, the benefit of a company like Apple. We have such an extreme exponential curve. You can still be late to the party. You you can be late and still do well, right? Because that exponential curve is so steep. Um, and you saw Ajit Jain uh, this past uh, annual meeting talk about Geico going into telematics, which Progressive adopted earlier. You know, Geico did not have to jump at that. They could let Progressive try it out and just buy the technology and just do it you know, it's a short tail business, you're going to have lots of feedback. And so I think he recognizes when technology can help when it can hurt, he'd be the first to admit that he doesn't fully understand technology that others can do it better. And of course, we just saw uh, within the last couple of days here, Berkshire invested in a Brazilian uh, startup fintech company, which was probably Todd Combs, but they continue to learn. And that's another big lesson that you can take from Berkshire. Gonna say it a bit early on, but have you read the article "Why the Web Won't Be Nirvana"? I'm sorry, what was what was the? It's, a, it's to do with the. So it's it's a really really interesting article. It's written in about 1995. It's called "Why the Web Won't Be Nirvana." It's just someone basically going through all the all the things people are talking about the internet doing and why none of it's going to work. Obviously, reading it now with the benefit of hindsight, it's a really it's a really interesting read because. Almost everything in this article is, is, turns out to be wrong, but it is quite like a well-structured argument and it is, it's, it's quite entertaining.
yeah, it just made me think of that. Yeah, you'll have sure. to send that to me. That'd be that'd be interesting to read. Is there any takeaways that you had from writing the book that you probably wouldn't have expected at the start? Well, like I said, that um, I'll just kind of put a finer point on this. You know, uh, people have talked about the concentration in Berkshire's investment portfolio. You know, so over the decades, you know, the largest single or the largest um, uh, four or five investments in the in the portfolio have been, you know, the, the largest might have been uh, 20%, 25%. And then the top four, they go from 50 to 70 to even 80% in some, in some cases, um, <clears throat> this concentration. But what I what I did, I, I paused in, in 2014, which was, was, of course, the 50th uh, anniversary of um, Buffett taking control. And I look back over the decades and I said, what is the largest acquisition of each decade? And so it was interesting to see this progression. But in each decade, each of these, uh, these five decades through 2014, um, in, in no case was it less than 15% of Berkshire's equity capital. So you, you have the Buffalo News, you have Scott Fetzer, you have General Re, you have BNSF. Uh, but what you see is this continual uh, concentration, uh, but, it, but it really leads you to the question mark of today, which is, okay, what is, what is that next acquisition going to be? Because if, if Berkshire is, it's got a little bit less than this, but call it 500 billion of equity capital to make an acquisition at 15% of equity capital, that's a $75 billion acquisition. That universe of businesses at the $75 billion mark are, are pretty few. And so um, it just shows you how hard it is uh, for Berkshire today. Some other interesting things, I mentioned the float, I mentioned the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, one other kind of really cool thing I found was Berkshire often borrowed in advance of needing any money. So we don't think of, of, of Berkshire as a big, big uh, debtor, but it, but it borrowed money uh, for acquisitions and it, and it actually borrowed money in advance of making acquisitions. Um, there were a couple of times uh, in, in the 1980s and 1990s and Buffett even calculated, he said, geez, net, we're, we're losing um, $150,000 a week on this borrowed money. But if we can find something intelligent to do with it, it will make sense to do this. And so uh, the, the rationale behind this, which just struck me was the best time to buy a business and the best time to find financing don't often coincide, right? So why not manage the, the liability side of the balance sheet, borrow when it makes sense to borrow money and buy good businesses or buy stocks when it makes sense to buy those. It, it just struck me as, as such a rational, logical thing to do. But uh, how often do you see businesses borrowing money uh, in, in a pretty big way outside of any major acquisition? Um, that, that was kind of interesting. Hey, I'll just mention one, one more thing with the, with the uh, insurance businesses. They formed a bunch of these home state companies, like I said, but not all of them uh, actually made it. Um, it's another sort of entrepreneurial uh, thing uh, that, that Berkshire did. They bought this home and auto business in Chicago. It did really well. This guy, Victor Rabb, founded the business, ran it, it ran really well. They said, let's try to replicate this business in Miami. Complete failure. They ended up closing the thing down. And so uh, we think about the successes of Berkshire. We think about where it is today. Uh, and maybe we have sort of an inkling of where they where they came from, but you sort of forget about the struggles and the challenges of of those early years, um, which is really really fascinating to see. Can you talk us through a few of the 
Um, a few of the interactions, I guess, that Berkshire's had with the UK in terms of some of the acquisitions and deals it's been involved with along the years, just to bring it home for some of our listeners. Sure, sure. Yeah, Berkshire has, um, Berkshire has a number of ties uh, to the UK. In 1991, they purchased uh, a pretty pretty good stake in Guinness. Um, I think it was about $105 uh, million. Um, they added to that a little bit the next couple of years, but then it kind of fell off the list of uh, securities in um, in 94. Uh, MyTech, which is a business that makes uh, originally made uh, trust connectors and things for, for building uh, bu- building companies. It, it's in the it's in the construction industry. That was owned by Rexam, uh, but the headquarters was in Missouri in the United States. So not really a UK company, but it had a UK tie. Berkshire has owned uh, stock in Tesco, the supermarket, uh, GlaxoSmithKline uh, owned some of those shares uh, as part of sort of a portfolio approach to buying some of these pharma companies. Two thousand eight, sort of the mid two thousands there. Um, but I guess the the, the big the big two I'll, I'll mention two. One uh, one is Berkshire Hathaway Energy. Um, Northern Power Grid is this uh, distribution business in uh, northeastern Britain. So um, I'm in the northeast, actually. Okay, um, I have to remember my sh- my shires here. Uh, Yorkshire and Lincolnshire come to mind as two of the maybe counties uh, in, in in that area. Today, that that business serves I think about three, almost four four million customers. Uh, so that that business, Northern Power Grid, that was actually purchased by so Berkshire Hathaway Energy today used to be called Mid American Energy. Mid American, its predecessor was this company called Cal Energy. Cal Energy bought um, Northern Power Grid in 1996 for um, around one one point three billion dollars. Um, so, so that that was the that was sort of the the genesis of, of Berkshire Hathaway Energy today. They they still own it. And um, I think they're one of, if not the largest uh, electrical distributor in um, northeastern uh, Britain. Okay. Uh, and, and then just, just you know, insurance is such a big part of Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, Lloyd's of London is, is uh, an, uh, a marketplace for insurance. And Berkshire has been a, a, a very big participant in, uh, in Lloyd's of London. Uh, we, we mentioned uh, Ajit Jain and just a, a story, if, if you haven't heard it, uh, Ajit Jain. So he, he loves, he loves insurance so much. Um, in the United States, we have uh, Thanksgiving, uh, usually the, the, the end of um, uh, November. There's no counterpart to that holiday in the UK. Well, Ajit Jain will uh, apparently has flown over to the UK on Thanksgiving so he can continue to work on that Thursday. <laughs> Um, just, just, uh, just to show you <laughs> his dedication to uh, to Berkshire and the insurance business. Wonder where he goes at Christmas. That'd be a little tougher. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Could you talk about your own investment appraisal process and how you'd go about looking at a new stock or potential investment or a company that you know is either on your watch list or you're thinking of adding to the watch list? Yeah, I've, um, I, you know, I think it's, I'm, I'm nearing. Closing in here on on twenty years of um, actually being sort of involved in in the market and 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 looking for good companies to buy and so forth and um, it's changed over time and I, I found that at the more I learn the more selective I am on the companies that I I, I will buy so I'm I'm always looking and and I just I look look everywhere I mean I have friends in the business or you read about a, a company in the paper 
Um, I'm really just trying the scatter approach to, to find any business that I can understand and looking at them. So it's, it's a constant process of looking for new businesses, looking at the filings of other managers, um, trying to learn from what Berkshire's doing, what Buffett's doing and other investors. But I mentioned, you know, growing up as a business around business and, and, and owning businesses myself, stocks are businesses. That's how I look at it. And so first I have to understand the business. Then I look to see, really try to understand the economics of it and the competitive dynamics uh, in, in which the, the business operates. And I spent a decade in banking. And so I have this risk first mentality of trying to essentially kill the business, you know, what are the competitors doing? You know, what could really hurt it? What could, how could technology uh, impact this business? And um, re really just putting it through the ringer, trying to understand it. And uh, I, I, I've, I'm very much attracted to that watch list approach of investing, which is get to know the business beforehand. And then if something happens in the market that presents an opportunity, you'll be in a better position to understand uh, the, the ramifications of what's happening and compare it to the price. So that that's kind of that's kind of how I, I how I approach uh, new investments. The best books that you've read on investing and how much do you read generally? Well, I have um, I have too many books. <laughs> uh, Jane Parrish calls it the anti-library, which I've come to embrace because it allows me to buy all kinds of books that uh, I haven't got to. But um, I read as much as I can. Um, and I, I very much, I'm, I'm sort of uh, of the Charlie Munger mindset. Uh, so I'm not just business. I mean, I really am trying to read everything. Um, I'm just interested in so many different things. But specifically with investing, I mean, I'm looking over here to the book I'm currently uh, working through, um, Bruce Greenwald's Value Investing from Graham to Buffett and Beyond. They just released a second edition. Uh, Bruce Greenwald is one of my easily top five uh, favorite investors. And um, he really cuts to the chase. It's almost as if, uh, you know, Buffett was sort of giving you the formula um, to, to how to invest quantitatively, uh, because Greenwald just talks about, he just, it's such a logical way of approaching uh, the investment uh, process. And um, his other book is called uh, Competition uh, Demystified. Highly recommend that one. He, that that book really helps you understand the the true and few competitive advantages that exist in the marketplace. You know, if, if you you read the annual reports of any almost every business, you talk to almost any manager in any business, they're going to tell you they have a competitive advantage. Ninety nine percent of the ones that you talk to don't really have a competitive advantage. They just think they do. Greenwald sort of helps you see through the mist. Um, really, really good book. I can, I can keep going. <laughs> I, I mean, any, any book you say that I've not read, I'm going to add some other reading this. So I'm happy for you to go on. Yeah, I have, um, and actually, um, I'll, I'll, I'll pull up. Uh, so I have, uh, I have a book recommendation list on the Oracle's classroom. So if you, if you go to the website, I, I'm going to pull that up while we're, while we're talking now, we can, uh, I, I'm sure there's a couple that I'm going to forget here. Snowball is very good, of course. Um, security analysis, you know, all the ones that Buffett uh, Buffett recommends. So, so here's just sort of a little, I don't know, tip or just um, the, the one of the first books I ever read, which I've probably read or listened to now a dozen times, is Robert Hagstrom's book, um, uh, the, the Warren Buffett Way. 
And uh, in that book, Hagstrom talks about the influences on Buffett. So he mentions Graham, he mentions uh, Charlie Munger. So, you know, read security analysis, read the intelligent investor, read poor Charlie's almanac, um, Phil Fisher. So his, his uh, probably most famous book is uh, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. And the one that um, people kind of forget, it's kind of dense, there's lots of formulas, but the basic message, um, it's called The Theory of Investment Value by John Burr Williams. I just went out and bought it, you know, and just said, well, if Jesus if it influenced Buffett, I want to read it. Um, and it was interesting just to kind of go through and, and see, uh, see those, the impact, uh, th that those people had on, uh, on Buffett, um, the outsiders, uh, Peter Bevelin's book, seeking wisdom, as well as uh, a few lessons, uh, all very good. So, um, a lot of great books out there on investing and on Berkshire. What do you read then that's, you say you read about a lot of subjects, what subjects, are there any subjects you read a lot of that aren't investing? I'm reading this book right now, uh, The Story of Evolution and 25 Discoveries. That's a book about, uh, it, it's interesting to think about biology and ecology in relation to markets, right? And you think of economics and ecology, they, they share the same root word. Um, you talk about niches in, um, in ecological systems as well as in the investing world. Um, I'm, I'm reading this other book. It's called Order Without Design, How Markets Shape cities again it's it's a book about urban planning but it has touches of you know how cities how cities develop and the economics behind it and uh ecology again you just you just find these things kind of prop up there's this other book i just read if you're into charlie monger i think you'd you'd really enjoy it but it's called the intellectual life by this guy um ag Sertelange from france i think it was written in the late 1940s but it's interesting because he talks about, you know, being distracted by, uh, you know, newspapers and things like that. You know, it's all the sort of same problems that we have today. Um, we're the same problems of, of yesterday, but that's a book that very much, you know, it talks about creating this environment for study and learning and um, just all of these things. Again, if you're, if you're uh, into Munger at all, I think you'd, you'd really really enjoy it. But I, again, I, I'm just, I'm so fascinated in everything from science to history. Peter Kaufman, uh, who, who edited uh, Poor Charlie's, is a, is a guy who I've, I've come to admire and re read anything you can on, on him. But really just th there's so much wisdom everywhere in the world and I'm, I'm interested in, in so much of it. But, but it, it does help broaden your thinking. And, and again, you find these insights uh, into investing that you might not otherwise you're just sort of strictly sticking to reading, um, you know, financial statements in the Wall Street Journal and what have you. Um, I, just, I, I subscribe to Discover Magazine, which is a science magazine. Um, so I'm all over the place. I'd say science is actually probably where I'm lightest in my own reading. I've been reading a lot of history recently with science. I think I've only really, I've probably only touched on it. I've read some Dawkins, you know, the selfish gene. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've read a, a few of his other books as well. But yeah, science is where I'm probably weakest. And there are a lot of, there's a, well, there's a, there's a few investors where they read a lot of sort of biology. Um, mm -hmm. So there must be something to it. Um, with Munger obviously being the most famous example. So I'll have a look at a couple of those. I've actually got a couple on my list because when I went through the Berkshire meetings in the 90s, Charlie used to get the same question every year of what you've been reading. 
um, <laughs> and there were a few biology books on there. So they are on my reading list. Yeah, again, it's there's there's so many parallels between uh, the, the economy and and the competitive environment in which companies operate. You know, you talk about evolution and change and finding, you know, compete. I mean, that those are the same things that's happening, you know, outside your window and in your, you know, in the, in the forest or something, um, species competition and change and adaptation and, and all of that. There's just, there's so much that you can learn. Uh, really so much of life is just figuring out all those interconnected ways in which the world, uh, is related. How long do you think you, it like, takes you to read a book? So like, how many books do you reckon you get through in a year? How many books do I read a year? Yeah. <clears throat> no, I, I used to, um, I haven't updated in a while. I, I include, um, I include audio books in that too. A, a few dozen, but I've really, I've really come to slow down my reading, I guess, and, and not, uh, Shane Parrish from Farnham Street. I don't know if, if, if you, uh, have followed Shane or, um, or Farnham Street, just in general, I'd, I'd recommend, you know, using a book, you know, I, I generally don't get books from the library because I, I want to actually make them my own and write in the margins. And, you know, you're, you're, you're having a conversation with the author. And um, sometimes, you know, it, it's okay. It's okay not to finish a book or read a little bit of one or pair it with another one. I've really come not to focus on the quantity but really the, the quality and i i've tried i mean i i buy new books and as as a guy who just just wrote a new book i i probably shouldn't be saying this but i generally filter what i will read based on how long it has been in print so you know security analysis was written in the 1930s that stood the test of time um, some of the newer books are really just kind of flavor of the month or just you know they, they're not they're, they're more entertainment than proven value. I mean, you, you can pick up a book by uh, Plato or Aristotle or Cicero. Those have been studied, debated, uh, gone through the test of time, um, and, and the wisdom is going to be timeless. So I'm, I'm really looking for those timeless lessons um, wh wherever I can find them. Well, for someone who's newer to investing, could you explain <laughs> why you think... Buffett and Munger's teachings are still relevant compared to, say, whoever the hot name is on Twitter at the moment. <laughs> they really are. Uh, it really is timeless. Uh, the things that they, you know, we're we're so lucky to have them as teachers. You know, they 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 basically commented on what they were doing over the last fifty years. They've kind of given you the secrets, really, as to how they do it. And all uh, most of the lessons are timeless, and you can really take a lot away. You know, take a lot away from uh, just the rational thought process and the mistakes that they made, maybe, or um, all of that. You know, security analysis, for example, written by Ben Graham. The examples in that book are, you know, the older railroads or coal companies or, um, you know, some of these sort of older, boring uh, businesses. But the 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 lessons in the thought process associated with that are timeless. And that's why that's why security analysis is so so relevant still today. So um, Buffett and Munger, I mean, they they have proven success. And um, you, you do really well to start with them and then expand from there and, um, and and challenge them. And, you know, don't don't look at what they say um, 
as the final word. You have to really, if you can understand why they did something and where they went wrong, that's a great way to approach it uh, because you, you really need to understand the why, not just the what. Well, the best resources that you use for investing and they can be free or paid resources. Yeah, so I, I'm a bottoms up guy. Um, I, I do all of my own research. I, I just, uh, when, I, when I'm, so I, I pay for Morningstar, which I find to be a, a really good service. They give a nice, nice, nice history of the financials and the ratios. Uh, even some of their analysis is, is helpful to get to know a, a company uh, at the very beginning. But I generally go right to, right to the, the primary sources. So whether it's the SEC website or the company investor relations website, I, I just have to read the, the 10Ks and, and any reports myself. Um, there's this little, there's a service, it's a paid service, but there's a free, the free part of it called, um, I think it's BAM, B-A-M-S-E-C, which is sort of a summary financial statement, uh, financial filings uh, aggregator. So you can go on there and you can see the, the latest 13F uh, from some investors or the, or the companies themselves and um, 10Ks, 10Qs. Twitter has actually become, I, I've just gotten on Twitter the last year and just seeing sort of the the universe of, you know, what what people have, have talked about. That's pretty much it. I mean, other, other than, you know, the, again, reading the Wall Street Journal, reading Fortune Magazine, those kind of things. Um, Which Twitter accounts would you recommend following the most then? Oh, geez. Um, you can plug yourself as well as part of this if you want. Yeah, my, my handle is um, BRK underscore student. I didn't plan it, but I, I, upon reflection, I said, geez, underscore student, the underscore. P- people look at me at the ex- as, the, as an expert on Berkshire, but I'm, I'm still very much a student uh, of Berkshire and investing. So to underscore that, um, geez, uh, Chris Bloomstrand is, is really great. Um, his, his logic and thinking, I don't, I don't want to exclude any, any, anybody that I should be t- talking here, but, uh, like John Mikulvic from, uh, uh, manual of ideas or guys fear. Um, I think Monish Pabra is on there. There's a lot of good ones and, and really just um, I'm still kind of learning how to use Twitter and getting into these, you know, chats and threads. And it's kind of interesting how dynamic it, it can be. Uh, I'm just going to pull up my list here just so I can see maybe some of the, the bigger ones. Um, Ian Castle, you know, I, I follow uh, Tobias Carlyle and Bill Brewster, uh, Jake Taylor, you know, those guys do the uh, Value After Hours podcast. They're pretty good. The Rational Walk, just just kind of, I mean, it's certainly if anybody's interested, you can you can see who I'm following um, and, and just kind of look look through that list. But um, I, I try, you know, it, it's you, you hear Charlie Munger talk about getting into these sort of self-selected groups where you're sort of just in an echo chamber, right? Um, I, I try very much to, both on Twitter and then I'm on Facebook a little bit, and LinkedIn, try to follow people that have contrary opinions. So I've tried, for example, to understand Bitcoin. And so I'll follow some people that love Bitcoin. It, it's, you want to unfollow them. You want to sort of just get into that like bubble where it feels good and people are talking about value, value investing all the time. But I, I find that if you can challenge your own thinking and, and, a great way to do that is to subscribe or follow to people that you disagree with. And it's going to, it's going to pop it up in your feed. And it's sort of this automatic reminder, like, Oh, there's different opinions and I could be wrong. So I, I hope that helps. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin then? I don't understand it. I think there's, um, I think some interesting 
from what I know, which is very little, the blockchain technology could have some interesting things, but I, I just don't, I just don't know enough about it. What I, what I have seen just this speculative fever and, um, you know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't resonate with me, uh, as an individual or, or as an investor, I, I'm not very excited about it. And, uh, I've, I've largely stayed away from it. Have you come across Preston Pish? Preston Pish, sorry. Yeah. Uh, those guys, uh, Preston Pish and, um, you're, you're talking about, uh, the, the investor. The, Stig Zeeborn. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Stig, yeah. I'm actually, I'm going to be going on his show, uh, later this month. Um, oh, wow. Listened, yeah. Preston's a big Bitcoiner and his his approach is I think you'd like is it's very, very like quantitative and math based. I mean he's got his own Bitcoin show on Wednesdays, but I'm I'm sure there must be Preston Pish is definitely worth following and his 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 Bitcoin arguments, it's it's definitely not speculative reasons that he's got it. Um and it's it's very, very quantitative. There's another guy called 100 trillion USD on Twitter. And his what he's done with it is he's taken an approach for valuing precious metals where you, you look at the the supply already in circulation and you compare that to the new supply that's created each year and look at how that's it looks at how that's impacted precious metals over the years. And obviously with Bitcoin, because the supply is known and the new creation's known because it's all it's all um, on an algorithm. He's mapped out what he thinks the price is going to do based on that. So th those are a couple of guys that are quite quite interesting if you are looking for. Um, yeah, no, a bit more. Th thank you. Um, yeah, that, that, uh, Berkshire bought, uh, gosh, what was it, like 100 million ounces of silver, uh, maybe in the late 90s. I um, used to get the questions on it every year after he bought it. Yeah, um, and, and that was an example of Buffett looking at the supply demand uh, dynamics and, and just finding finding an obvious mislocation of value that may hold true. So so here's and again, I'm, I'm just I'm still thinking about it, you know, actively. I don't have really an opinion. But when I think about, OK, yes, the supply of Bitcoin is fixed. But. You have all these other copycats, right? So so is the supply of what's the generic term cryptocurrency is it really fixed no and i guess it would it would it would ultimately require everyone adopt the same coin correct i i don't agree with that i think that's kind of i think you i think you what you're discounting there is the network effect and I, that's like me saying well i can take facebook's code and i can copy that and i can just create sandbook but if no one's going to use it and that's where you know the network, the network, it doesn't matter if my, if I create a website that's 10 times better than Facebook, if everyone's still using Facebook, it doesn't make any difference. And I think that's what's missed. You can, you can fork the code and create your own version, but that the value is not going to go with it. And I think people don't, people, people realize that in the Bitcoin community. And I, th I think if, if a good example is that if, if you, if you do start digging into Bitcoin more, in about 2018, there was, there was a fork from, it was some of the key developers, actually. It was one of the big arguments in Bitcoin is, do you increase the block size? And and basically what, what the block size is, is, the block size allows you to do more transactions in a block. So it means you can speed up the number of transactions. And there was, there was a group that wanted to go to bigger blocks. And the issue with bigger blocks was that it meant that it was much harder for someone else to run a node. And there was this group that basically said, well, we're going to go off and we're going to change the code. So we've got bigger blocks. 
and they tried to get everyone to follow them. And there was a literal like prize war in 2018. And this spun out and it's, it's called, it was called Bitcoin Cash. And at the time, it was not clear whether the original protocol was going to win or whether everyone would flock to Bitcoin Cash. And if, if you look at the price of Bitcoin Cash now and compare it to Bitcoin, it's very, very obvious which one has won. And there have been numerous other ones which have spun off as, since then. There's been Bitcoin Diamond, there's been loads of them. And they're not, they, they just don't, well, they just they just don't compare because they don't have that network effect, and also with the network effect, it's backed up by the um, so that what the miners I don't know if you're aware, but the miners basically add security to the network with their processing power. If the miners don't follow that Bitcoin Cash network, if you wanted to do a fifty one percent attack, so if, if you want to try and take control of the blockchain, all you need is enough computing power. With Bitcoin, it, it's just not feasible to do it because of the cost. I mean, when you see the, the electricity where it's using as much electricity as some countries, that is the, the cost it would be for you to take over the network effectively because you need 51% of that electricity to have any chance of overpowering it. Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't I don't think that the other, the other coins are really comparable. It's, I view it the same way as copying and pasting some code on a website and then not having the users with it. So how, how do you explain, and again, I, I'm, I claim no expertise here, but just from what I know, the Dogecoin or what's the other big one, Ethereum, like what, why, I mean, those have huge market caps, right? Like why? Well, that's, that's like, to me, that's like, the way I see it is I, I think there's Bitcoin and then there's everything else. And Ethereum is very interesting. And if it does what it says it's going to do, then maybe that will be a fantastic investment. But from, I mean, when I first started getting invest interested in Bitcoin in 2017, Ethereum was making the same promises and it's not really delivered and it's not got the usage. Whereas Bitcoin is it is delivering. And with Dogecoin, I mean that's that's just that's that's to me like saying, well, how can you invest in the stock market? Look at look at GameStop. Like, how can the stock market be a, le a legitimate way of investing your money when when GameStop has no link to reality with its valuation? And I think that's 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 one example and that that doesn't they're not all grouped together in that way i think dogecoin is is dogecoin and it, it it does help if you want to run up the market cap or something to have the world's richest man with with no filter on twitter just talking about it all the time it, it is going to impact the price i i, I again I, I i probably demonstrated that i don't fully understand it um but i guess ultimately ultimately the the proponents of it today are banking on the adoption of it but ultimately what they're saying is bitcoin will become adopted as a currency that can be used to transact business correct like it, it'll be it'll be a currency substitute right i mean is that is that sort of the basic if, if... I, I, I view it as more of a i mean there's there's the means of, there's a means of exchange but i view it more of a store of value i don't really see a scenario where you're going in starbucks and you're paying for your coffee with bitcoin even if it's can be done very very cheaply i i do view it as more of like it i view it as akin to a digital gold you're not going to go in starbucks and hand over a lump of gold it doesn't even if they start accepting it you're not going to do that instead of a instead of a coin you I, but i think it does give you a way of opting out of maybe the current system if you if you did want to store your wealth in another way it's more of that store of value i i, I do for me it's, it's the digital gold argument that makes okay. the most sense if you're an investor where you think well i'd never invest in precious metals i'd never invest in gold anyway because they don't produce anything i'd expect you're going to come to the same conclusion with bitcoin 
Yeah, that, that's that's how I view it. I mean, ultimately, whether it's the means of exchange or a store of value, I guess ultimately what it comes down to is having that claim check on future output, right? Um, so if, if you're gonna you're gonna essentially store your time in Bitcoin and you're gonna take it back and buy something with it in the future, it's stored time, right? it still leads me to the same conclusion that, geez, I would rather own a business. I'd rather own a stock, regardless of how the currency is denominated. Because um, if I if I own Coca-Cola, that, that business is going to be producing something for society that's going to have a claim on the future output of society. And whether I'm paid in dollars or seashells or Bitcoin, it's the system that's the system, which is a business, is going to produce that. So I, th that's kind of where my current thinking is because I, I view it at best as a currency or maybe a gold equivalent. And in either case, I'm not interested in it. Um, yes, I think that's fine. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's more of like, I guess that's more of like, an it's more of an, an informed decision because it, it, it doesn't produce anything. It's, it's never going to. Um, whereas I guess when you're saying, well, what, what are the other coins? Why, why the, I, I don't, think that's the case um but we you know it, it it definitely doesn't produce anything you're not going to get any dividends from it and if that's if that's just if it's just one of the things where it just goes in the too hard pile then i think that's yeah that that's kind of where i am and 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 i, th I think you know your, your logic sounds re reasonable to, to me and and the fact you know it, if it ultimately sort of you know we're in this sort of um you, you know um whatever they call the pre uh, the, the universe at its earliest state was in this sort of like plasma, you know, sort of messed up state. We're in this messy period. And, and eventually, you know, 20 years from now, maybe Bitcoin shakes out as sort of the, the one. It has the network effects. It wins. It's, it's stable enough that it could be used as a means of exchange or uh, a, a store of value. If that's ultimately the case, I'm still not interested. Maybe maybe people will will, will see it early and 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 benefit from it. But I, I just I I'd rather focus on what I what I do know and I'm more certain about, which is uh, certain businesses. Yeah, I mean, I actually, no, I appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, for the record, I don't I don't see a scenario where everyone's where I'm getting paid in Bitcoin and everyone's doing. I I view it as to something that's going to sit alongside the current system, really, rather than replace it in a similar way to, to how gold functions. I think, you know, if you're an institutional investor, I do see a scenario where people are, you know, they're putting a couple of percent of the portfolio in gold. And I think we are starting to, not in gold, sorry, in Bitcoin. And I think we are starting to see that a little bit. And I, I view it almost as a commodity. Um, I think it would sit in that part of portfolios. Um, but if you don't invest in commodities, then yeah, I, I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so who do you look up to as an investor then that you've not already mentioned? Yeah, Buffett Munger. Um, again, as I've, as I've kind of expanded my, my, my investment uh, horizon, you know, Howard Marks, I've really come to admire. Uh, Bruce Greenwald, I, I mentioned. Pat Dorsey uh, is, is another one. You know, guys like, like Mario Gabelli or... Um, Tom Russo or, or Tom Gaynor, um, you know, you know, those, those, those sort of uh, value investors in, in the Buffett Munger sort of orbit, uh, all of those guys. Yeah. I'd, I'd probably leave it at that. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started out? And if you, if you could speak to yourself when you were starting, what advice would you give? Yeah. Again, I, 
It, it, it's interesting. Um, it, it's a great question because I, I, I see now looking at, um, like, for example, I'm in a value investing Facebook group. It's got like 100,000 members. And I, I can see some of the same sort of questions and the sort of same thought processes that I had, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, which is really, I guess, I, I, the, the, the one piece of advice is first view stocks as, as businesses, but spend time to think about the economics. Um, I, I see too many investors looking for the formula, or if they have a formula, or maybe it's a, a complicated one, or maybe it's a simple one. But you know, I, I see investors saying, well, geez, here's the free cash flow, and I'm going to assume this growth rate and this discount rate, and there's the value. And oh my gosh, look at this margin of safety. Really take take a look under the hood and, and really uh, really look at the economics of the business and ask who are the competitors and ask how are they producing this revenues just all of that wonderful sort of uh, nuance that's behind the hood not just what the free cash flows are but how have they evolved over time uh, I, i've i've very very much uh, come to start I, I like to view the history of a business, you know, like at minimum 10 years. And I go through and I look at the capital allocation history. And I, I do this in, in my newsletter as well for, for most of the businesses that we look at just to see, okay, what were these major capital allocation decisions over time? You know, how was it generated? First of all, I mean, there's just very few ways you can either raise capital by organic, you know, earnings, or you can borrow the money. Uh, or you can have additional capital contributed by equity holders. Those are pretty much the three only things that you can raise capital from. And then using capital, you can pay dividends, you can buy back shares, you can reinvest in the business, um, you can pay down debt, those kind of things. There's, there's few categories, but if you view that history over time and the major capital allocation decisions that were made and really understand the business, I, I think you'd be a better investor. I've become a better investor. I still have a long way to go, but stay away from that really mechanistic. If it can all be done on a spreadsheet, you're probably not quite there because we, we know there's enough computing power out there today that um, if it can be done in a computer, it, it probably already is. Have you evolved as an investor yourself? Yeah, again, um, I, I've, I've kind of uh, followed that path of, you know, I, I actually keep uh, a spreadsheet a, a document I've called the Folly Gallery. So this is a, a, a spreadsheet, a place that I, I put down and I, I rub my nose in my mistakes to use a, a monger term. I, I, I put all the dumb things that I've done over time, like 2007, eight, you know, just again, sort of mechanistically like, oh, geez, let me buy this stock because it has a 10% dividend yield. Yay me. Well, what did I, what did I buy? I bought, I bought a mortgage REIT in 08, uh, 07, 08. Well, that, that tanked and it tanked for a reason. And it had a high dividend yield because the dividend hadn't been cut. I've done some other dumb things like that. You know, I've, I've stopped, I've stopped uh, using any margin or anything like that. No, mar no options, anything like that. Uh, but I've done these things in the past. And so if you're going to do it, do it on a small scale, but eventually you'll come to the conclusion that it doesn't work very well. But that's how I've evolved as, as an investor. And, and everything has pushed me toward thinking and acting like a business owner and trying to remove all of the noise uh, that's associated with everything else. And, and again, it's, it's led me to a path where I'm very, very selective today. And um, 
skeptical of my own knowledge of a business. And I really, I really need to know the business very, very, very well before I'll invest in it. What do you think of current valuations generally in the US? Not cheap. <laughs> um, yeah, things um, and you hear you hear Buffett say, geez, you know, if earnings stay as high as they are, and if interest rates stay low, markets aren't overvalued. But I I, I look around and, and I just see I, I, there's certainly pockets of value, but you, you have to sort of just H Howard Marks, you know, I mentioned him earlier as, as someone I follow. Marks has this sort of like litmus test on the market, this sort of like rough feel. Um, and in his book, the most important thing he, he talks about, he talks about it where you can kind of just roughly take the, the market's temperature. How, how are interest rates generally? Um, what is sort of the general attitude of, of investors in the market? You know, is, is credit easy or tight? Uh, you know, just these sort of things. And, and all of these indicators on, you know, just, just point to things being uh, overvalued. Um, it's, it's certainly been, it's, it's been a long run and, and I don't know what or when it will change, but I'm, I'm being very careful today. Do you look at UK listed stocks at all? Uh, not, you know, I, I, I don't, exclude them. I'll say it that way. Um, I, I don't just search in the United States. I mean, if I come, uh, I, I've, you know, talk about another mistake. Uh, I've, I've bought a Chinese company, which turned out to be sort of a semi fraud. Um, I, I generally feel most comfortable in, in the United States. And then sort of right outside of that is um, like, I own a company that's technically domiciled in Ireland now. But UK, sort of, uh, you know, Western Europe, I'll, I'll uh, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, I would have no reason to, uh, to not buy a UK-based business. So the, I think the value, the valuations in the UK are very low. We've, we've got in our index, we've got a lot of old economy stuff that's certainly not as high quality as the stuff you've got like we've got you know if, if you look at the FTSE 100 which is the biggest 100 stocks in the UK there's a lot of banks there's a lot of pharma there's mining it's it's that kind of old economy stock so that is part of the reason that the valuations are lower um but even still some of the valuations in the UK I think are very very reasonable and um, certainly when compared to the US because my own portfolio is split about 50 50 between UK okay. and US so how do you think about allocation and position sizing? Allocation and position sizing. I, I don't set out to have any kind of like master design. Um, I really take that approach in terms of finding the best businesses that I can. I mean, I'm, I'm conscious of the concentrations that might arise. So, you know, if, if all of a sudden banks become cheap or insurers or something like you know, I don't want to have the whole portfolio in that, right? Position sizing. I mean, I mean, I, I very much take the view of of Charlie Munger and uh, concentrating um, my my bets and using using the best one that I currently own as the threshold as the opportunity costs. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try out a new um, this analogy I've been thinking about. I'm gonna try this out on you. So you have a deck of cards, right? You have, you, you, there's four aces in there, four kings, go, go, down the, go down the list. If your hand already has three aces in it and three kings, we'll say, right? You have six, you have six great cards. You've gotten to know those cards. 
I mean, you, you know, clearly what they're worth, whatever game you're playing uh, poker, we'll, we'll say, cause they're, they're valued. Uh, but if you, if you have three aces and three Kings, you've got, you've got six cards out of the deck of, of 52. So there's, there's 46 cards left. What, what are the odds of another great company coming up on the next turn? It's going to be pretty low, right? So where I'm trying to go with this analogy is you, you've done the work, assuming you're at a point where you have a pretty good portfolio, it's going to really take a lot to add something to it, right? It's that whole, how is your, in this case, seventh best pick better than maybe that ace that you already have? Now, if an ace comes, right, you have a one in 46 chance of, of that next card being an ace. If an ace comes, maybe you discard a king or maybe that other ace that you have is overvalued or fully valued and you want to exchange it. But the, the, the whole, I hope this is coming across that the, the real great opportunities are few and that leads to the leads to having a concentrated portfolio portfolio and leads to low turnover and low activity and, and continued searching, looking for that sort of final ace in the deck, if you will. So that that's kind of how I've come to think about it. I don't know. You can tell me if that analogy worked or not, or if you'd change it. No, um, I, I like it. Um, yeah, I, can't, I can't remember the, the, who the quote's from, but it's, it's the best. It might be Peter Lynch, right? So it's the best business is probably one you already own. I think it's Peter Lynch. Um, but no, no, I like that. I look forward to hearing it on um, the Investors Podcast in a few weeks' time when I listen to that. <laughs> yeah, I should. Uh, you think I should try it out? Yeah, it just. I mean, it, and it just it comes back to to owning businesses. I mean, I I, I view myself as a business owner, and um, you know, so, some of the businesses I've I've owned. I mean, I've I've, I've talked to the management, or and Berkshire. You know, won't surprise you that Berkshire Hathaway is is one of the companies that I own. I, mean, I go to the annual meeting, and I've shook Buffett's hand, and I've shook Bunger's hand, and you know, I've talked to the managers and, you know, it's just, why, why would I want to sell that? Like, it just, it's, it's, I wear fruit of the loom underwear. Like I just, I, I view, I view it as uh, an ownership of a business. And, um, you know, if, if I, if I don't make a trade in, in a year or two, I mean, that's fine with me. So moving on to the next part of the interview, and this is questions more about your actual portfolio rather than, yeah. Your philosophy, I guess. So you say on your website, Mead Capital Management manages private accounts through a careful selection of a small number of competitively advantaged companies purchased on the basis of sound principles and stewarded with an even temperament. Could you just expand a bit? And I think we've, we've sort of covered it earlier on, but why these things are important to you? Yeah, yeah. I, I tried to pack, you know, that that's, that's sort of my elevator pitch, if you will. You know, we talked about the small number of companies. They have to be competitively ad advantaged. And, um, you know, I, I'm not averse to buying an average business at like a super, you know, great price. Um, we're 180 degrees probably from a scenario uh, where I would find that. But I'm looking for good businesses with a moat, with some sort of competitive advantage, the ability to grow, all of that. That gets, you know, then the, the, the principles part of it thinking like a business owner. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, stocks as a business, looking at the economics of a business, um, understanding the accounting and the management and, and all of that. You know, I, I, I won't mention the name of this business, but there's, there's one that's sort of, um, I don't want to say popular, but um, well-known, 
uh, as sort of touching the value investing community, sort of a lookalike. Um, he's kind of a sketchy manager. Um, I, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to become a partner with, with that person um, at, at any price. Um, just, just my, my quirk, um, kind of like buying a tobacco company or something and then stewarded with an even temperament. I mean, th th that's sort of the last, that's, that's the keystone. I think um, I I'm, I've, I've come to view what I think uh, is an advantage uh, that, that I have is having an even temperament is being rational being okay. I mean, I, I lived through 2008 and 2009 when the market was, was, was down big for a, a longer period of time than, than last March. I mean, I lived through last March too, um, with client accounts and, um, being, being rooted in thinking about businesses, thinking about stocks as businesses. And for whatever reason, my genetic makeup is such that I just don't panic. I just, I don't, it, it does not bother me. Um, when, when stocks go down, um, it's a challenge having, clients sometimes and, and trying to communicate that, Hey, the businesses might be only slightly affected, or this is a great buying opportunity, but that temperament I think is a big piece of the equation that you, you have to have that, or at least know yourself well enough that the textbook might say that you have to do this for your portfolio or your investment advisor might be saying that, but you have to know yourself uh, best. And, um, I think I have the right temperament for this business, but uh, time will tell. I always, it reminds me of the, the Buffett quote, when things are down, I always, I always go back to that quote. I just, I'm going to butcher the quote, so apologies for that. But um, I think it's something along the lines of celebrating when stocks go up. It's like celebrating when um, gasoline goes up because you've got a full tank. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he's used gasoline Um yeah, you just fill up your car and then gas doubles or something. Like, would you would you rejoice? No, or you know, why would you why would you be happy that the price of hamburgers or you know food or something has gone up in the grocery store? It's it's kind of a paradox, right? We we recognize yeah. value in, in in every other walk of life, but um, it's it's you know I, I try to explain it to my brother and my sister who who are not finance people. Um, th there's there's tendency to view your brokerage account as a savings account, and it's like, hey someone just reached into my account and, and stole 10% of my portfolio, right? Well, that, no, that's not how it works. It's just a quoted value. But if, if that doesn't click for you, you, you got to take an, you got to take an approach that will both work in, in theory, but also work under the conditions that you've set in your own life. Uh, Cause if you cut that short and I've, I've seen people do that where they, they sell at the sell at the low and buy at the high it's, it's destructive long-term. It really is. You're long only. Why did you decide to take that approach? Yeah, I talked about some of the mistakes um, earlier. I, I've I've come I've and, and, it, and it all comes back to viewing stocks as businesses. So you know, mirroring mirroring the private business world, and, and I've operated in the private business world um, as as a commercial lender. Uh, and so, you know, I just, if, if the stock market didn't exist, what would you think about? You'd think about the financials, you, you know, you, you can't short a private business, right? Like if I want to go uh, in town and, and say, geez, um, I want to, I want to short this McDonald's franchise or short this gas station or this apartment building. You, there's no, there's no mechanism to do that. Right. It, it, it doesn't exist to my knowledge. If it's a REIT or, 
McDonald's stock or whatever, you can short that. But it just it um, you know shorting just to go a, a little bit deeper. Th there's value in I'm not knocking short sellers because they have a, a value in terms of keeping that rationality in the marketplace and uncovering fraud and all of these things. Um, I've just come to the conclusion that I will do a better job as an investor returns, you know, minimize risk, maximize the, the returns that I can get for myself and my clients by trying, eliminating all the noise of everything that is not directly consonant with a, a private business. And um, that's why I'm long only. All my clients are in cash accounts. Um, we don't short. We don't borrow on margin. We don't use options. Basic, boring, buying businesses, um, but buying good businesses. And that's where the excitement is. So that, I think, leads on quite nicely to the next question. So again, it's just a quote from your website that I'd like you to okay. expand on. Uh, so it's stocks and businesses, sorry, stocks are businesses and should be purchased on the basis of sound business principles. We look for businesses we can understand that have some sort of competitive advantage or moat protecting strong returns on capital and that are operated by shareholder-friendly management teams. The business is only purchased if available at a rational price that we feel carries with it a margin of safety. We believe satisfactory long-term results can be achieved without the use of margin options or short selling. So yeah, could you just expand on that and why, why you do believe those things? Um, particularly the, the moat and the um, competitive advantage part. Yeah, um, like I said, uh, that that's sort of the, um, the, the those are the aces that I'm holding, right? That those are those those great businesses that have good returns on capital, great management teams, they have reinvestment opportunities, all of that. Um, but but the kings are just as valuable in that deck, um, or, or the queens, and those might be businesses that uh, are more more like a good or average business, but where the price makes sense, and so it's always. It's always this dynamic, this this trade-off between business quality, but if everybody knows it's a good business and they're going to value it at such, um, it it doesn't it's not obvious where the value is. So good good businesses, it's another it's it's sort of another risk uh, a way I control risk is if I'm wrong about a great business, as long as I don't wildly overpay for that business. I'm going to be protected from doing dumb things. So um, I'll just pick, pick, pick a company out of the hat. I've used Coca-Cola in the past. Um, I don't own it directly, just, just through my investment in Berkshire Hathaway. If I overpay for a business like Coke, you know, if, if um, I'm trying to, I, I don't even know what the market cap is today, but if I think a stock is worth $100 a share, and it turns out that it's only worth 90 or something or you know 85 all that might happen probably is that my compounding rate of return is going to be a little bit lower than it it probably could have if if i'm wrong on a business that goes bankrupt i've got a zero and um and that's a big hit so i, I it's another way of uh of incorporating safety into my investment process the the, the good businesses you can generally, you, you on an absolute basis, um, uh, you know, a, a Coca-Cola is way better than a, um, you know, some some newspaper business today. I mean, we we can both agree on that. Um, so uh, I'm not trying to get into the, the the fine points, 
of, of a great business versus a, a slightly less business. But if, generally speaking, if, if I'm if I'm invested in a good business, uh, something good is probably going to happen. Again, all the other things we talked about, finding a, a shareholder-friendly management team. Generally, I, I like having companies that have good and big uh, insider ownership with shares that they've um, acquired themselves. And then uh, again, a rational price. I, I don't believe in, you know, hey, geez, um, you know, to use an example from Berkshire, geez, um, you know, the Union Pacific Railroad is is valued at, you know, 25 times earnings. Therefore, the value of Berkshire's railroad should be 25 times earnings. Um, I, I look at the cash. So uh, this relative valuation approach is, is not excite me in the sense of, geez, this business is worth this because it's competitors or the market's valuing it like that. If something's valued at 25 times earnings, that's, that's a, a 4% earnings yield. And you got to consider the growth that's uh, a comp in, in that component. But I'm really just looking again, private business, forget about the market. How much cash can this business uh, give to me based on the, the purchase price that the market's implying today. So um, you, you look at the market price, you say, okay, what's the market cap or what's the, what's the enterprise value? That's your data point, then sort of forget it and just, okay, well, how much cash is this business generating and original compared to that, that market price? Um, that, that's what keeps me from paying, you know, these, these 50, 30, 40, 50 or more times multiples. Um, it keeps me away from all those tech companies. And I know I'm going to be wrong in some of them, but um, the chances of being right are, are, in my opinion, vastly uh, higher if I'm, if I'm in, uh, in, in something I can understand. You say as well, when an opportunity does arise, we believe in conviction. Client portfolios are generally limited to 10, or 15, 10 to 15 businesses, with the top five representing the majority of the portfolio. This approach is consistent with a business ownership mindset. And in addition to that, you've only got six stocks in your portfolio. So is that due to lack of op opportunities at the and current valuations? Or is that just because you just it's part you just so you believe so much in those businesses that you want to be that concentrated? Yeah, but both. Um, you know, and, and again, it won't surprise you that Berkshire's is one of the or is the biggest. Um but I, I, again, I, I, I look, I, I take that business owner approach and say, well, geez, if I look to Berkshire, right, I don't own one stock. I own all of the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, which was in the Fortune 500, uh, was in the S&P. Uh, I own all of Berkshire Hathaway Energy. I own all of Geico. You know, all of these businesses, Berkshire itself is this hugely diverse. I mean, um, Apple, Apple is what? 15% of, of Berkshire's market cap. So do I really own six stocks or do I own, you know, how many businesses do I own? And, and I look, I look through the stock ticker symbol and, 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 and try to determine what the businesses are that I own. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm comfortable with that concentration. Um, I probably wouldn't be as concentrated if that top stock wasn't Berkshire Hathaway, just because of the breadth that it, it affords. Um, and it has, I've purchased it at at very good prices, and then it's the things that you that you said. So both both the opportunity cost of okay, can my sixth or seventh or eighth or fifteenth pick really be as good as the first one, two or three? Probably not. I will. So, so that leads to the concentration, and and yes, it is harder to find find good value today. 
Um, but but I, I will hold on to a business. Uh, my, my threshold for buying, there has to be that clear margin of safety. But if a business runs up to 110 or 20% of what I think it's worth, I may not sell that. So that that's that's what might lead that number one or two pick uh, or, or largest business. Um, it might not it might not be that great of an opportunity to sell it. So I want to keep it in the portfolio. That's why I might add that number seven or eight or nine. But that's always the that's always the threshold. And um, so I, I hope that helps. I think if if we have you know I have this watch list that I've created, and if um, if we get the nice a nice bear market and stocks broadly are down, you know, fifty or sixty percent or something, um, I'm going to go shopping. And uh, <laughs> so I would expect that number to rise o- over time a little bit. But anything over ten, I think you're really getting too diversified. So yeah, unsurprisingly, Birch's in the portfolio. How do you feel about the current market cap, the valuation, and its potential for market beating returns going forward? Or do you take the view that it's such a good company, it's so safe, it it doesn't need to beat the market as long as it does well? Yeah, I think, um, and again, uh, you know, not, not, nothing here is investment advice. I do have to say that because I am registered as an investment advisor, and um, uh, you know, but but I'll I'll talk sort of generally about valuation yeah. and. Um, you know, Berkshire, I think it's really important to understand, just just sort of adjust your expectations, if you will, with, with Berkshire. I mean, it is this behemoth with almost 500 billion of, of equity capital, um, you know, a market cap of, what, 650 or 660 billion. It just simply cannot grow like it did in the past. I mean, that will not happen. Um, but Berkshire is, it is the rock of Gibraltar in terms of, I mean, it's got all this, all this cash, it's structured in such a way that it's, it's, um, it's resilient. It can actually take advantage of market uh, stress. It's not going to be reliant on anybody else for outside capital in any kind of stress or situation. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty fairly valued. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, compared to everything else, it's a decent value out there today. Um, And, and look, look no further than, uh, than Mr. Buffett, uh, purchasing his own shares, um, which which would tell you something about the attractiveness of Berkshire, uh, keeping in mind uh, the the lack of opportunity out there generally in terms of interest rates and uh, and the stock market as a whole. So one of your other holdings is holdings is HIFS, which is a small bank in Boston. What attracted you to this company? I was a little I'm a little reluctant to to talk too much about it because it is such a small. Uh, I think it's probably a 600 million market cap, but the price has run up quite a bit lately. So I'll, I'll dig a, I'll, I'll, I'll dive in a little bit here. So Hingham Institute for Savings is this bank uh, just just south of Boston. Is this town called Hingham? It, it is probably the the best run bank I've ever seen. Uh, they just they know exactly who they are. If if you look at their investor presentation from their annual meeting, they have an entire slide, Sam, on what they don't do <laughs> they 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 just they understand that they're in a commodity industry they have an extremely efficient cost structure they have an efficiency ratio in the 20s and for non-bank investors an efficiency ratio is is basically an overhead ratio so their overhead is very very low they only invest that uh, they make loans but they have a strategy of focusing on multifamily um, and commercial real estate 
So, so they know their asset class very well. They've had basically no losses over the past, gosh, 25 years. And uh, the, the, the management team just really gets it. They own a big chunk of the bank. And um, again, they, they understand they're, con they're just relentless about taking out cost. They're constantly thinking about risk and, um, you know, growth coming second, really. I mean, this bank has grown at a very good clip over the years, but safety is first. Uh, I used, again, I, from my own personal experience, I used to work at a bank. The general structure is that you have, um, starting from the loan officer up to the board, varying levels of approval in terms of loan authority. So if you come to me, Sam, needing, you know, 100000 for your business, I might be able to do that on my signature. It's a million I might need my boss. It's $5 million I might need um, the loan committee. And if it's, you know, $10 million I might, I might need uh, the whole board approval. Hingham has no loan level loan authority. Every single loan is reviewed at the board level. Board members view the properties. They own one third of the bank. So they're the ones approving these loans. They're, so by extension, they're going to only invest in projects that they deem safe and, and the track record really speaks for itself. So it's, it, it is a, it's a very, very good bank. For me, banks go in the two hard piles. So I don't have much okay. experience <laughs> to draw up. I had a very quick look at it and it's, it's, it's a PE ratio of 10. Is that a good metric to use for the bank or should it be something else like the book value? And what, what do you do when looking at a bank that differs when you, to when you're looking at another type of company? Yeah, banks are definitely a, a special, special animal. And um, you can get in a lot of trouble because there's so much that can happen internally that, you know, you, you have this, you, you can have a cancer growing below the surface and all of a sudden one day it erupts. Um, you, you've seen that in the 2008 banking crisis. You've seen that with Credit Suisse, with um, uh, Archegos or, you know, the, the hedge fund that blew up there. Um, you have these risks that can be behind the surface that just blow up. And there's, there's, there's really no way as an investor to understand what those risks are. You really have to rely on the track record of management and having a management team that's not only incentivized, um, so you, ha you have the track record, but incentivized with their own capital to make good decisions um, and, and take good risks. So you, you got to be careful with a bank. I mean, they, they are leveraged by definition generally speaking at 10 times equity capital. So that creates these sort of distortions where um, I have, an, I have a, an, an intern working with me right now, for example, I said, geez, um, look at this bank. It's got, you know, more, more cash on its book than, than the market cap. Um, but that's pretty much the case with almost every bank. I mean, Bank of America, it, it has that situation too. So you, you got to kind of be careful and remember that a bank is leveraged. It has equity capital. It might have a little bit of debt, but it's going to have deposits as well. And backing those deposits is going to be a lot of cash. The other thing you got to be careful of is the accounting. So at least in the United States, security gains and losses get passed through the income statement. So that I, I, I can't tell you, I, I trust that that PE of 10 is, is uh, you know, a current number and probably reflective of the actual gap earnings. But I don't know, you know, Hingham has um, securities gains in there. And you really have to look at not only the current earnings and the, the adjustments. So just operating earnings. So exclude any of these sort of one-time capital, capital gains and losses. Um, but also where we are in the cycle, almost every single bank over the last couple of years with maybe the exception of some of the, um, 
pandemic-related uh, losses or charges. Um, and I, 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 I always tend to look at actual charge-offs, not just the reserves, because those, those are the cookie jar. The losses are actually, you know, gone. That can, that can play in a, into it as well. So we're at a point in the credit cycle where banks are doing pretty well. They haven't really had many losses. Looking at a bank through the full cycle is really how you want to look at it because it's very, a saying in banking is that anybody can lend out money. The key is to get it back. Um, so uh, when we go through the, the next cycle, uh, you know, you, you'll find out, to use Buffett's quote, who was swimming naked. And, um, uh, you know, with, with Hingham, they have a, a track record that dates back to the mid-1990s. And, um, you know, that, that speaks for itself. So that PE of 10 is probably closer to maybe 15, if you look at it from a um, sort of core core earnings. Um, and again, understanding that they've been operating uh, with, with a tailwind. And management even tells you that they've been operating with a tailwind, which is another indicator in itself. Okay, so that's the end of our questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to discuss that's not being mentioned or? No, I, I think this has been great, Sam. Um, it, it's really great to have have the long form, have, have all this time. Uh, I, I hope, I, I hope everybody uh, has made it all the way this far. Hopefully I wasn't, uh, wasn't too boring and too long winded here, but uh, it's, it's great to really dig into the nuances of Berkshire and all these things and, and expand. So uh, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. I'm, I'm looking forward to editing it, but yeah, so I, I think people will have made it to the end. If I'm looking forward to listening to it all again, hopefully that's a yeah. good indicator. <laughs> Yeah, and, and please, um, like I said before, I, I really view myself as as a student still. Um, I've benefited enormously from uh, others being very generous with their time and, and their insights. And, um, you know, reach out. Uh, if, if you read the book, let me know how you like it. Let me know if I missed anything. I just found a couple of mistakes in the book. Um, uh, you know, I, I love the conversations. I love all of it. So uh, please reach out. Please continue the, the discussion. And... Um, yeah, looking forward to this coming out, interacting with folks and, uh, and all your other uh, guests as well. You know, I, I learn a lot from uh, from you, you guys. I mean, it's it's great to have uh, great to have you podcasters uh, uncovering some great great value and, and really adding a lot to uh, to the conversation. So, where can people go to if they have made it to the end and do want to learn a bit more about <laughs> you? Yeah. So um, again, my Twitter handle at brk underscore student. Uh, you can go to the Oracle's Classroom or brkbook.com uh, or watchlistinvesting.com. And um, either one of those, you'll, you'll find out more about me. You'll, you'll find a way to reach out to me. Um, so look forward to hearing from everybody. Okay. I think that's everything then. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.